Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is The Expat Money Show. Today's guest is an author, futurist, and entrepreneur. He has been an outspoken supporter of decentralized systems and individual freedom and has been accused of attempting to create an anti-government cult around decentralism, something he doesn't deny. He has authored four books deeply exploring humanity's movement towards societies of decentralized governance, including his latest, Underthrow, How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Will Spark a New Revolution. Please welcome to the show, Max Borders. Max, how are you? Great, Mikhail. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. You know, you and I were chit-chatting for, I don't know, 20 minutes or something like that before the call. You know, how did I know your work? How did you know my work? And it seems like actually, although we haven't met in person, we run in a lot of the same circles and we know a lot of the same projects and a lot of the same people. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Maybe to kick things off, you can kind of Tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did you get into this type of work and what really spurred it on? Sure. I guess, you know, one's life story is big, bigger than a podcast, and I don't want to bore people. So let me highlight what brought me here to this show. I think that's probably the, the best way to do it. I started off, oh, I don't know, close to 20 years ago in the boxes I call the three P's, politics, policy, and punditry. And I felt as if, metaphorically speaking, I I was beating my head against the walls of these boxes because practicing in in the three Ps doesn't really get anyone anywhere, as you well know. So right around, I'd say, 2007 and 2008, I became interested in moving out of the three Ps. I felt almost a yearning, a calling, and that was into what I refer to as creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation as mechanisms of societal change. Now, part of that is legal innovation, which I hope we get to discuss because as your listeners are fully aware, there are really cool opportunities for legal innovation out there, but very few places on earth that can try new experiments and governance. So we have to be clever about it and we have to practice what I call subversive innovation which is this idea that applying creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation is a way forward that is not only neglected, but not well invested in as a mechanism of social change. Now, I am something of an entrepreneur, but not as much as you and probably not as much as your listeners. That being said, I think I have the chops to inspire entrepreneurs. I want to get people to stop thinking so much about politics policy and punditry, which is in many respects, a kind of circular firing squad and get them to think about how to make social change by applying subversive innovation. And that's what brought me here. And I'm happy to be here, Mikhail. Well, I can definitely understand that. I have worked with many libertarians over the last 20 some odd years who think that the path forwards or what they have tried in their life is changing policy. How can we influence things? How can we have our own candidate in there? And, you know, if we just were to elect the right person, everything would be okay. I think that over the last two and a half, three years, people have come to terms with this will never work. It's never going to happen. And and I have clients slash friends slash colleagues who have spent 
an entire career on these types of things. And the realization over the last two and a half, three years has really shooken them a lot. And now they are seeing things more how I view them. And that is, it is time to leave and we need to create something from scratch. We're not going to be able to reform the systems that are in place in Canada, Western Europe, the US, these types of places. We need to go somewhere. We need to start from scratch and we need to build something. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. That is such a succinct way of putting it. And I would divide that. So when I told you and hopefully the, the, all your listeners listening that I had about 2007, 2008 was shaken. One of the things that shook me from, I guess you could say my dogmatic slumber on the three P's was this idea from Albert Hirschman. Exit Voice and Loyalty was the book. And the basic, I want to call it a human algorithm in that book is as follows. There are three options, basically, if you want to make change in your society. You can exercise voice, which is speaking up, voting, waving your hands, doing all the good kind of stuff, activism that people tend to think of as being part of the three Ps, frankly. We know based on the dynamics of public choice, and more specifically, the special interest and favor seeking that goes on. This idealistic vision of electing the right person or passing the right law is really not the best way to make societal change. We've just lived through too many catastrophes to see that come to pass. So voice is still an option. I exercise voice. I do it every day. That's what I'm paid to do. And I hope that your listeners listening to my voice won't discount me for saying that. However, there's what remains is exit and loyalty. We can remain loyal to systems. And as we've seen from sort of like the nationalists, both left and right, loyalty to systems doesn't work very well either. Exit, however, can have a profound effect. We can exit a product as people have been doing in more recent times due to the culture wars, and that's been very effective. We have seen also exit from countries. Who ever heard of that? We might want to remain patriotic Americans or Canadians or what have you. And yet what we're seeing is that crossing borders has distinct advantages that in my circles we call jurisdictional arbitrage. And I'm sure your folks are familiar, your audience is familiar with that dynamic. So I think that is an extremely promising avenue, but it's not just exiting systems like countries. There's also this idea of exiting into the cloud. And by the cloud, I mean the digital cloud. So on about, you know, there was this famous white paper written in about 2008, 2009 called the Bitcoin white paper. And that started a decentralist revolution. People felt like they had an opportunity to exit their fiat monetary systems as well. So it's not just exiting terra firma, although that is also often a great idea. It is also exiting systems of terra firma to go to digital systems or to exist or persist in the digital realm. And that is becoming more and more an option with uh, cryptographic technologies, despite some of the bad reputation of crypto and what it gets in the, in the news media. Well, I agree with you very much. And the very common phrase is vote with your wallet, which I think is an excellent first step for people. But I actually prefer the Milton Freeman quote, which is vote with your feet. If you don't like what's going on, the way that I interpret that is to leave. And that is what we are encouraging people to do, because I just don't think that, you know, so I every day have, Max, I have people who are in New York or in California or places like this. And they're like, well, do I really have to go overseas? Maybe I can go from California to Florida or California to Texas. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great first step. However, we still have the federal government and the federal government, they're monsters. They are legit, absolute sociopathic monsters. And there's no stopping them. And just moving to another state, although it is, it's going to help, it's not enough. You got to go a little bit further. And if you're going to pack up your things anyways, why not go just a little bit further and really get rid of the federal government? That's the monster that we have to watch out for. That's absolutely right. It's interesting that you say get rid of the federal government because that is honestly what motivates me. I mean, from a theoretical standpoint, there was this this old philosopher, Thomas Hobbes, who was 
writing in the 1600s. And I'm sure your, your listeners are aware of Thomas Hobbes' work, Leviathan. And the idea behind that is it really, if we're not going to attack each other, if we're not going to fight over resources, if we're, if life isn't going to be nasty, brutish, and short, then we need to cede a certain amount of our rights and freedoms to a sovereign. And that sovereign is going to have ultimate power to suppress the conflict of all of the peons below. Now, that's not a bad idea until you consider that the sovereign has an agenda of his own. And we have a, I'm sorry to use the F word on your show, but we have a fascist collusion <laughs> between the elite, the moneyed elites and the and government power right now that makes it such that it's not just a single sovereign as it was perhaps in the days of old, sort of pulling the strings of aristocracy. Now we have an evolved version of that that means that we have basically a massive extended politburo where corporate interests and in collusion with government interests are really running the show. Well, absolutely. What you're describing is cronyism. It absolutely boils my blood when people will come to me and say, oh, well, capitalism has failed because of A, B, and C. And it's like, well, no, that's not capitalism. I mean, if you're spending billions of dollars to corrupt politicians or politicians who are corrupt and asking for handouts. I mean, chicken and the egg, I don't really care which one comes first. And then having special interest groups that are lobbying these types of laws. I mean, that is not a free market. What I always want and what I think pretty much every speaker on my last 250 some odd episodes of the program want is free market capitalism. I mean, this is what we're looking for, an even playing field. And if you can look at the history of government going back hundreds of years, this is organized crime. This is a mafia. It started as fiefdoms, small kingdoms, and they exploited people. And that turned into government and they just kept doing it over and over and over again for centuries, so far back that people don't even realize or remember what the original histories of government were. These are not the good guys. They're the bad guys. This is something we should be afraid of and something we should be working to dismantle. They're not the solution to problems. They're the cause of problems. That's right. And it's interesting that we call it government sometimes. And we, we need always to remember that, or we call it the state, right? Sometimes we use these abstractions. And if you look it up, I believe that's called the fallacy of hypostatization. It's a fancy word, which means, hey, look, let's be more specific here what we're talking about. We're always talking about real people with real operating within real incentive systems. And even when you have politicians, activists, or the like who have, who feel at least in their own hearts that they are working for some conception of the good, what ends up happening is that the incentive system warps or transforms them in some way. And it is this, the monopolistic nature of central governments and the authorities that express them. And let's be very specific that again, that these are real people that these real people become shaped by those incentives to such a degree that even if we don't think of them as pure evil, and I sometimes do, we at least need to think of them as lost, lost souls, utterly shaped by the incentive system of monopoly. So that's really what got me into this idea of underthrow, which is, as I said, the, the my title of my latest book, and I'm not trying to sell the book on your show. I mean, I, I would love for people to read it, but I really want to dive into the concept of underthrow. Underthrow as a mechanism would be sort of like overthrow. We think of overthrowing a regime through violence. Underthrow is about a thousand different ways that we can use subversive innovation to start to pull the power back. It, it kind of rhymes with undertow, you know, in the ocean. When you stand in the surf too long, you you worry that you're going to be you're going to be hit by a big wave. But really what gets people is the undertow. It pulls them back unexpectedly and they drown. I would like to think that we can start to find new paths, the weak joints, the leverage points of innovation and entrepreneurship to really, really undermine these state authorities, these real people and their incentives. It can change the incentives. Let me give you a couple of brief examples of, of which your your audience will, will surely be aware. I mentioned Bitcoin earlier, and that's one. We have a monetary system that is completely captured, 
you know, it's supposed to be an independent agency, but it's completely joined at the hip with the federal government whenever, and this is the case as a U.S. centric. So, but this is also true for just about every country in the world. When the central banks have to respond to fiscal policy, such as overspending, debt spending, and currently in the United States, we're at over 130% of GDP with our debt spending. That's a lot of money. That's a sea of red ink that's going to be really difficult to swim out of. And so the idea is that we can just, you know, the incentive, the short-term incentives of authorities is to keep spending and spending and spending. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto came along as a subversive innovator and said, wait a minute, we need an escape hatch. And it needs to be censorship resistant. It needs to be thus and so. And Bitcoin white paper catalyzed a community of decentralized open source developers who began to create what we now know as Bitcoin. You might not like Bitcoin. You might not trust it. Maybe you have a lot of gold bugs in your audience. Be that as it may, it was a first instance of people saying, we've got to create a hive mind that that protects value that we earned and protects a monetary system that is stable. Once people start to figure that out, we're going to start to see a lot less volatility in Bitcoin and so on. But this is not a, a case to be made about Bitcoin. We, really, what I'm just describing is this idea that we can be subversive innovators together in solidarity. Another example, of course, is Uber in 2012. You know, the very idea of hitching a ride with someone was taboo because it was dangerous. But you couple that with technological means, GPS technology that tracks every route. People have identity relationships with Uber. They have everything is not only tracked, but you have a reputation system, reputation system associated with both riders and drivers. Suddenly, you not only detabuized this idea of hitching a ride, you were able to overturn the taxi medallion monopolies in so many jurisdictions around the world, which, of course, are also corporatist schemes. So these cartels that are formed but based on business and government and in mo most of the world are being undermined by subversive innovators now. And I think what's really great about the expat community is they see these dynamics and they're actively looking to escape systems that are holding them back. And that is the first step towards subversive innovation. So as you were talking, it was kind of reminding me, I just bought a brand new beach house and where we have this beach house, it's a gorgeous spot, but the waves are very strong. It's on the Pacific side. And I was thinking about the undertow there. It's exactly right. When you're standing on the water and the waves are coming in, what's happening is the sand is coming out from underneath your feet. You know, it's being sucked back into the ocean. So my question for you is, if this analogy holds true, how much of the ground underneath the government has to kind of fall away before they lose their balance and they got brought out to sea? I wish I could answer this question with certainty. I can only speculate. I see a couple of scenarios that can be played out, and I can enumerate those quickly. The first one is reform, where it's like the metaphor of, excuse my Southern accent, I'm from North Carolina originally, so you can probably hear it in my voice. But we like to sit on porches and tell stories in North Carolina. And one such allegory is the story of the old dog who sits on the porch. And the old dog moans and moans and moans. And everybody's like, why is that dog making that noise? Turns out there is a nail in coming out of one of the planks of the porch. And the more the nail comes out, the more the old dog yelps. Question becomes, at what point is that old dog going to get up off the nail? It's going to have to come out far enough and poke into his belly hard enough for him to feel the pain to make that reform. That is usually the way insolvent governments finally get around to reform. We saw it in in the 80s, in the early 80s with Ireland, for example, before they became the Irish Tiger in the 90s and 2000s. We saw it, for example, in New Zealand. New Zealand is one of the most economically prosperous and free places in the world, despite their abysmal record on COVID. In terms of their institutions, they're a very strong country. And people are seeing New Zealand as a welcoming port in the storm around in places, various places around the world. We can say similar things about Switzerland and so on. But most people don't realize that New Zealand was on the brink of insolvency in about in the early 1980s. And they had this Roger Nomics, 
based on this economic advisor who he and his colleagues recommended to a socialist government, by the way, that they needed to make serious, serious reforms. And among those reforms were agricultural reforms. And they began to really, really take off with agriculture first, and then all kinds of other things followed. So reform is a possible path. However, it's not clear that the incentives are aligned for that, even in such a scenario now, because that nail is, we're crying out right now in the United States and and in Canada as well. And the more we cry out, it doesn't seem like the political class is listening at all. So what kind of damage, what kind of pain is it going to take for the political class to act? Have they been utterly captured by special interests like the military industrial complex? I worry that is the case. I also worry that the the voters who are now in their 60s, the boomer generation, of which there are many in the expat community. So this is, you know, this is not to slight the boomers. They've done many wonderful things. But there was all that generation is also a big voting demographic, and they don't want you to take away their Social Security or their Medicare and all these great big entitlements that, despite their having contributed to it over the years, are completely going insolvent as we speak. Uh, Social Security, for example, has about five years left in, in the tank before it's insolvent and we start it's running on fumes. So the kind of reforms that would be necessary to rein in this Leviathan state, the welfare warfare state, it's not looking good. So then we go to another scenario, and that would be, and I'll try to keep this short, is collapse. And I have written another book called After Collapse, which, you know, is is based on the idea that this is going to happen. And then what's next? And so part one is the diagnosis of the dissolution of the American Republic. Similar things can be said about many different Western countries. The European Union is just as bad off and in many of the same parallel respects. So it is a cosmopolitan message, to be sure, as well as and there are some social phenomena in here, too. It's not just the economics, but just in terms of the economic factor, things are looking bad. Collapse could come. There could just be a domino effect any day. Short of reform, we're going to have collapse. What happens afterwards? That is among the many themes in my many in in my books, which are is different flavors of how to bring about decentralization. And that's really first and foremost, we got to have a, a mindset change. Then, of course, shortly thereafter, we have to have an incentives change. It has to be a revolution in, in thinking and a revolution in incentives, both together for it to work. Otherwise, we will descend into dystopia. Well, on your point about reform and pain, the government feeling pain, I had breakfast with a potential client maybe two or three weeks ago, Canadian who was down here in Panama to visit me. We sat down for an hour and we're talking about the exit and how this happens. So two points I want to make about this. Number one is that the tax base in Canada of productive people, these are business owners, entrepreneurs, highly paid professionals, are fleeing the country in droves. I work with a very small tax law firm in Canada, and they do all my deemed dispositions for my clients, and they sign off on all of the strategies that we do. Just last year, they had over a billion dollars of capital flight. And I mean, this is a couple-person law firm. This is not one of the big law firms or multinational law firms. You know, over a billion dollars worth of capital flight from Canada. And when we take clients go through the exit, the gentleman I was sitting with was asking me, how many of these cases are challenged by the CRA? And I said, pretty much none. I mean, none of them. Because my perspective is that they want conservatives and libertarian people out of the country. And they don't care how you leave, but they want you gone. And so it's not a it's not a question of, you know, are they going to feel the pain? Is this tax base going to slip away from them? Are they going to lose their money and, and, you know, what's feeding their coffers? They want you all gone. It's war. And the faster you go, the happier they will be. And that's why I think a place like Canada, we're going to see massive amounts of not just capital flight, which I'm describing right now, but human flight of essential resources and skills and educated people to perform tasks. I think that we're going to see a massive hole in the economy in a place like Canada. And that's a scary thought. I grew up and I liked my country very much and it was a beautiful place and I had a great childhood and was outdoors and enjoyed the weather and there's lots of really nice people there. But 
the Canadian federal government, once again, as we were talking about federal governments, is disgusting and they're evil and they hate you. So my point is that reform and are they going to change and things like this? I would say no. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country, and the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico, and coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico, including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. I would say no as well. And that's sad because I don't know. Perhaps it's possible again, but these these little countries like Ireland and New Zealand have very different dynamics and their governance structures. They're not, for example, so dependent as the United States is on the exorbitant privilege of the dollar being the world's reserve currency, which allows for all sorts of shenanigans in the United States. In Canada, I would say you're absolutely right. Let's talk talk for a moment about resources in Canada. From Vancouver to Newfoundland, you have this absolute and utter hatred of fossil fuels and other in the use of resources. You know, Canada's rich in them. And that hostility to fossil fuels is just another way that Canada is being weakened, not just the 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 entitlement state, but also the sort of attempts to neuter the fossil fuel sector. Now, I'm not completely, you know, of the mind that there aren't sort of knock-on, negative knock-on effects from the use of fossil fuels, but we always have to ask as compared to what. And if you think you're going to blanket the world with wind farms and solar panels, you're out of your boop mind <laughs> there. I, I bleeped it for you, your, your, your editor or whoever doesn't have to. <laughs> you can freely swear on this show. No problem. I don't think you're going to upset any of my audience. Right on. So this opportunities to leave a jurisdiction and find another is really, interestingly, this is why I'm so happy to finally have this conversation with you, because I'm working on this at the theoretical level. And what I mean is, what you guys have to do in helping expat repatriate their companies and their money and their bodies, voting with their feet or voting with their boat, which has a nice rhyme to it, I like, is you are taking the world as relatively fixed right now, given the behavior of these governments, right? And a lot of times I would guess, and I don't know if this is entirely true, but I would guess that you have small jurisdictions, small states that have to be open for business in order to attract your expats. So you get really interesting jurisdictions around the world that are small jurisdictions with not a lot of state capacity, and they put their state capacity into good governance, which means good institutions. And those good institutions protect capital and attract capital. So you get all kinds of really these cool little islands of prosperity around the world, whether that's Panama, whether it's Singapore, Liechtenstein, Luxembourg, these tiny little places Hong Kong used to be, now that the CCP has taken them over, they're losing it. And that is really a shame. But these are all examples of these small jurisdictions who think of governance as being on the market. That's because it is. And your listeners know this. And so they buy good governance by going there. It's almost as in they're opting into a new system and they're willing to pay the fee for good governance, which is the tax system's that are more favorable. And it starts with taxes, but it's also weather. It can be all kinds of things that people want, but certainly tax is a big one. Tax has always been a big one. And the interesting piece of it is over the years, it was just business owners who wanted to reduce their taxes so they could have a bit more money to spend. Actually, the trend that we're seeing now is that people will spend additional money not to spend money on taxes 
because they despise where the money is going. And in most cases, you know, th- this idea of taxes go to pay for the roads, I think that everybody realizes is complete BS now. Actually, number one, it is being used for corruption and war and what we're seeing with hidden laptops and things like this and the big guy. And it's like, no, that is some legit corruption out there. And then on top of that is the surveillance state. They are weaponizing all of this to surveil you and to monitor everything you say and do and watch and think and and they're using it all against you. So I actually have a question I was posing to some friends the other day, and it went something like this. I don't remember the exact way I phrased it, but it was basically like, would you rather spend $100 in taxes, but you have no say over it? They just take it. you know, Without your consent, they take $100 in taxes. Or would you rather spend $200 to legally structure things so you pay zero taxes? I don't know what camp you're in, Max, but me, I would happily pay that $200. I would happily pay 10x that money to make sure that it is not going towards institutions that I think are disgusting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes life is about more than money. And when you consider that if you're in Canada, the federal government is forcibly stripping you of your resources to give it to your censors, as in the case of the truckers, and to give it to these propaganda organs like the, is it CBC? Yeah. That is unacceptable. Likewise, in my country, we are spending it on foreign wars that we essentially sowed the seeds of in the past, particularly in the case of Ukraine and Russia, and we're engaged in a proxy war, giving away billions of dollars to that effort. And they're playing team sports with people's lives. Ukrainians are dying en masse because of it, and they're being used as cannon fodder in our proxy war. And most people don't even think about it this way. But I don't want to get into geopolitical team sports things. I just don't like the idea that my tax money goes to that. Now, that being said, here's what I'm trying to do about it, if you'll permit me. Of course. Absolutely. So I'm working with actually a man who lives in Singapore, and he lives there for a very good reason because <laughs> it's favorable to him. He's a man of means. But I have been collaborating with this, this person to create a contest. And the contest is as follows. It's called the Constitution of Consent Contest. And basically, if I can boil it down to five principles, I'm going to try to do five principles. I'm actually just doing this off the top of my head. So forgive me if I only get four. <laughs> But it would be a constitution that obviously the first principle is in the name, one that you consent to. Most of the time when we're just this idea that we're born into a jurisdiction based on a history of conquest means that we have this legal system that attaches to our bodies and to terra firma. And the only way to escape it is to leave the jurisdiction in order to sort of take a bath from what accrues to us in terms of legal system. But we can imagine a world, and if you have any sort of good old anarchist types out there, this guy Lysander Spooner back in the 1800s said of the U.S. Constitution, I never signed any such document. I never consented to this. And the reason he said that was because of Thomas Jefferson's dangerous idea, which is in the subtitle of the book, Underthrow. And that is this, that If governments don't respect our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we have a right to dissolve those governments, which is based in this idea. And this is written in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Forgive my America-centric rah-rah-rah stuff, but the idea is universal. It is cosmopolitan. That is the right of the consent of the governed. And consent is not hypothetical. It is not tacit. It is not imaginary. It needs to be explicit, explicit consent. When your expats leave their country to go live in another jurisdiction, they are explicitly consenting at that point to the that the laws of that new jurisdiction. That is an important feature. Okay. Before you jump into the next one, I want to highlight what you've just said because you just said it so well. People who move to another country, sometimes they complain about the laws or they want to change things or maybe they want to bring bad ideas for another country into the country that they now call home. 
I think you have just put it really, really well, because that is exactly what you do. When you go through an immigration process and you make an application to be a resident of that country or get your citizenship in that country, what you are doing is you are opting into that system. 193 countries in the world, 193 different systems. When you add on to state and municipal, I mean, there's just so many. And, and I would like to see this number grow from 193 to 10,000 to 8 billion. Absolutely, I would. But practically, right now, what we have right now is 193 countries. So if you move to Panama, great. Let's follow the Panamanian law as it's written and do what's here. They don't want you to pay tax here? Amazing. Don't pay tax here. You want to move to Finland and they're going to charge you 70% tax? I have no problem with that because you have asked for that residency. You have made an application. You signed documents. You agreed to pay that 70% tax. So go for it. I don't like it where it's like, oh, I was born in a country. Therefore, you are required at the barrel of a gun or the threat of being in a cage to pay this type of tax. I think that is wrong. If you opt into it, if you say, yeah, I'll sign up for this. This is what they're going to give me in return. Free healthcare and free education. Free with quotation marks. Yes, I know nothing in life is truly free. But you've opted into it, then I have no problem. You do whatever you want to do. You do you. That's how I look at it. Beautifully said. Absolutely right. And look, there is this old saying, you know, from I think it was Ice-T from one of his rap albums back in the 80s. Don't hate the player, hate the game. And the rule sets in each country create games that can be exploited. They're usually what Kars would have referred to as finite games. With this effort, this constitution of consent, I'm trying to create an infinite game. What do I mean by that? So the second part is a principle of subsidiarity at the very least. Okay. Principle of subsidiarity is very much like federalism in, in the U.S. or Canadian systems. So you have more authority that goes to the provincial authorities. And so therefore more jurisdictional options. Same with the United States. States rights is what we call it here. And in that diversity, we have 50 different options. That's not to say that the federal government doesn't loom over it. It is to say, if you had this constitution of consent, the second principle of subsidiarity says all decisions, all decisions must be carried out at the most local feasible level. So half the crap that the U.S. federal government does or the Canadian government does, and this is this is a terra firma rule, right? Doesn't need to happen at the level of the federal government. There should be 50 experiments. How many provinces are in Canada? Good question. Seven provinces and four, three territories right now, something like that. I can't even remember. I haven't been in Canada in like five years. So, right on, right on. Well, as many as there are, seven and three. So that would be, yeah, 10 or 11. Seven and three, 10 and three, 10 and three. I don't know. How many provinces in Canada? 10. We're going with 10. I don't even know. I don't go there anymore. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, that you would have with this, under this principle, which is, you know, doesn't appear in any in any and isn't applied correctly if it does appear in a constitution, doesn't get legal traction. So we need that to be a part of it and it needs to have bite. I mean, so and it, there are examples of jurisdictions in where this this principle does work. Switzerland is one of them. The Canton system. The Cantons are on equal footing with the federal government and they make a lot of decisions about their welfare systems healthcare systems and so on. And they're able to sort of overturn federal power with referenda. So there's interesting checks. It's not perfect system, but it's a hell of a lot better than our two systems. I'll tell you that in the Swiss system. So Switzerland is a destination that is looking very, very good for a lot of people, particularly in the crypto community because of Zug. Now, so that then another is the principle of panarchy. Okay. Panarchy is a funny word from a Belgian guy back in the 1800s, writing on about the time of Das Kapital, interestingly, writing about the time of Karl Marx, who was, of course, suggesting the opposite, which is a one true way. And it is communism, right? And this, this also goes for our libertarian friends, right? Libertarians often think in monolithic terms, but you said something interesting earlier. And that is this. If it is possible to create a new jurisdiction easily, whether that be to break off from another jurisdiction as separatists or spawn another jurisdiction somewhere, as long as that's baked into the law at a fundamental level, the right of self-determination, which is bizarrely in the UN Charter, ought to be in a constitution of free people. And that doesn't mean that those free people are going to create 
completely limited governments with zero taxes. Some of them might create your Finnish system or your Scandinavian systems. Some of them might create little welfare states that are sustainable and they like that and they want it. But there again, it is an opportunity to carve out a niche that can be a testable laboratory of experimentation. And if your system is shitty, then it will fail. You fail to attract adherence, you fail to attract people, or it becomes unsustainable in time, then your jurisdiction will die as it should, and your system will fold. That's what markets do. That's what markets and governance can do. That's what they need to do. If you have a sustainable welfare state, great. That's all well and good. But so... It's what's interesting about this is I'm not I'm trying to appeal to people across the conventional political spectrum with a metapolitical idea that is a constitution that allows for this pluralism. Did I do four yet? Have I done four of these principles? I'm not sure. We weren't numbering them. I got caught up on the how many provinces are in Canada. I'm the least right. Canadian Canadian, and that's the only thing I've been counting in my head here. How many is like Labrador and like this? So, oh, I, I remember the last one I wanted to mention, and I'll mention it quickly, and and then we can we can go on because sometimes people get they don't like too much theory; they'll go to sleep. I don't want your listeners to go to sleep. But there's there are two different kind of legal systems in the Anglophone world that are in operation, and that's statute law, which comes from Rome, basically. The French call it code civil, but it's basically Roman or Justinian law. Okay. And the idea is that a bunch of really smart people are going to get in a room and make the laws for everybody else, right? Central, still central government. It's representative, but then they make a statute and then it, special interest accrete around that statute and it ends up being an amber for a hundred years, even though it needs to be changed 50 years ago, right? Whereas the common law is this other form of law and it's really based in contracts, torts, and property law, that's really all you need. You don't need statute law. If you have a strong private property regime and a strong private judicial system that people can opt into and so on, if you have that common law system and it, it works, you better believe it. The Emiratis imported British common law into their system because they wanted to do business. And you better believe they're doing business in Dubai. They're also attracting people from all over the world, particularly Europe. So I don't know if I covered all the principles, but I've covered enough. The idea is that we want, based on these kinds of principles, and the listeners of your podcast can cheat, we will pay $20,000 to the winner of the best constitution that embodies these principles. $20,000. Second place will get $3,000, and third place will get $2,000. Now, you might be wondering, why? Where in the world are you going to have this constitution? I can answer that in a minute, but I want to step back and say, hey, if you've got people listening, they've got and they're sitting on a beach and they want to do a little work and they've got they've got a big brain. Help us fashion the constitution of consent and win twenty thousand dollars. Amazing. OK, we've been Talking right now a lot of the the theoretical things, the high level things. Let's di dive into the the smaller piece of this. Now, do you think the person who is going to win the contest is going to be borrowing the laws and and other people's constitution? Do you think that they need to have a background and an understanding of other countries' constitutions, or do you think it's going to be the person who starts from scratch with just kind of like the moral framework of what is just and base the constitution on that? I cannot say. I want to leave the possibility open for both of those things to be true. You know, there are things that we know in this world that work, right? So I wouldn't want to dismiss those things. But there are also times when you have a beginner's mind or you can reason from first principles and create a really interesting state of affairs. I have a feeling that the winner is going to pull from both of these domains. And I think, and by the way, I'd say to get reminders about the contest, to find out more about the contest, you just go to underthrow.org. And subscribe. You can subscribe for free. It doesn't cost anything. Paid subscribers, I'd love to have you. It keeps me in business, keeps me going every day, providing good content. But you needn't do that. It's totally free if you want it. And if you if you subscribe there, underthrow.org, I'll be putting out reminders, but also hints like this for the kind of things that might be good to go into a constitution of consent. 
Well, I think it's very interesting when we look at laws because what I follow is the Richard Mayberry, Rick Mayberry, who I look up to very much and I speak to him on a regular basis now in a, in a group setting with, with a dozen guys. And he always boils it down to the 17 words, as he calls it. It's do all that you say will do and do not encroach on other people or their property. And I think that any type of legal system or framework has to be built on those couple of things. It has to stem from that. That's why I think that government should have nothing to do with healthcare, nothing to do with education, nothing to do with pretty much anything, just these couple of pieces. If I wanted to have any type of government, what I would be looking for is a police force to protect against local domestic type of threats, a standing military, a Swiss style of defensive military that would protect against foreign threats, and a judicial system to mediate disputes. That's it. Like, the hell are you guys doing with, you know, in public education and trying to educate people? What are you doing in the healthcare system? What are you doing in the pharmaceutical or zoning rights or jaywalking or things like this? It's like, you have nothing to do with this. We have natural law. All laws should be based on natural law. And if there's no victim to a crime, then why is there a law surrounding it? So I think that that would be where I would start personally. I think that's a wonderful start. And if your listeners start with Richard Mayberry's words, that's an excellent place to start. Now, there are some functional aspects of this that, you know, they might want to include uh, apart from that, but certainly those are great places to start. And I would not, and I would not discourage anyone from starting with those points. In fact, it's interesting that you say that because I tend to think of politics and morality as being two different magisteria, right? But the extent to which you can have like the basic virtues, I have six that I like. Nonviolence, right? So never initiate violence against anyone. But of course, you can defend yourself. Non-aggression principle. Oh, yeah. Some people call it non-aggression principle. It's an ancient concept, though. It's uh, in, in India, it's called in Buddhism and in Hinduism, it's called ahimsa, which means ahimsa, non-violence. And of course... Gandhi brought down the British Raj with a kind of ahimsa, right? The practice of of satyagraha, truth force, right? So we have this idea that there, there's power and peace and peaceable existence. And we can practice that in thought, word, and deed every day. The second would be integrity, which is also in your Richard Mayberry line. Just do what you say you're going to do. Be true to yourself and others. And is the basis for contractual law. Yep. That's absolutely right. Then there is, of course, um, you, if you want to fold in to the nonviolence, this idea of uh, extension of your person to property, I would call that stewardship, right? Okay. Stewardship of property. Then there is compassion. I think we ought to be compassionate to others. That doesn't mean that, and the way you practice compassion is not to have someone put a gun to your head and say, give me all your money so I can redistribute it as if by algorithm to keep people dependent. It might be mutual aid associations. It might be good advice. It might be charity. These are all part of a civil society of free people who self-organize into communities because they love each other. They love their neighbors. And then there's reason. Oh, there's pluralism, which is an extension, I think, of toleration. So you might have your neighbor might be someone who practices Zoroastrianism or one of the three Abrahamic faiths, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. It doesn't matter. We can live together as neighbors as long as they're not hurting you. And you may learn something from their differences. So pluralism as a practice is bigger and better than toleration in my view. And that's just like, what can I learn from people from their differences? I don't necessarily have to adopt them, but I might find a facet of a greater truth if I do. And finally, there's the use of reason, which seems to have been cast out in the, in the age of social justice craziness. And I will say that is a crazy religion. Okay. <laughs> so we are living in an era of unreason, untruth, and pretending that these simulacra of reality are a reality. This is not going to go well. If we practice all these virtues, we're going to do okay. And the extent to which these virtues can be baked into the law, I think we're going to do better as a human population. Brilliant. Max, I love it. Very, very interesting conversation today. I really enjoyed it. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to learn more about the contest or, or get a hold of you, where can we send them? Go to underthrow.org. 
click on contest in the nav bar at the top of the page. And I really hope to get some entries from the expats of the world. In fact, I would love it if it was a non-American or non-Canadian or former Canadian, former American who wins the prize. That'd be a delight. Amazing. Max, once again, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. We have seen a ton of movement in the Bitcoin markets recently, and the influx of new wallet addresses and people coming into the space is insane. However, there are some serious privacy and security issues by using traditional exchanges and methods of Bitcoin. That's why I want to recommend every one of my subscribers to check out myprivatebitcoin.com. It is a detailed course on everything related to privacy and Bitcoin. This is for experienced people to the crypto space all the way to people new to Bitcoin. Go to myprivatebitcoin.com. And for expat money listeners, you will receive 25% off the program. Go to myprivatebitcoin.com to learn more. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.